Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am your host for this interview. And today I'm speaking with Eric Porter. Dr. Porter is a professor of history at the University of California at Santa Cruz and is the author of A People's History of SFO, The Making of the Bay Area and an Airport, which came out with the University of California Press just a couple months ago, earlier this year in 2023. Uh, Welcome to the New Books Network, Eric. Good to have you here. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here. First, why don't we just start, as we always do on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about yourself as an author. What is your background? And in particular, I'm interested in hearing how you became interested in history. Okay, well, I'm from the Bay Area originally. I guess I would describe myself as a late convert to history. Um, I didn't really grow up as a history buff, but became interested in history and also interdisciplinary studies, interdisciplinary histories in college. Um, So just, you know, was drawn to a variety of different kinds of courses, um, began to think more historically about the world at that point in time. And eventually that led to my entry in a PhD program in American studies, um, where I, well, studied American studies, but also, but had a disciplinary foundation in history and have since done a lot of different kinds of historical work. Um, primarily trained as an intellectual and cultural historian and have done a lot of work in music studies and um, uh, traditional intellectual history. I have a book on W.E.B. Du Bois and um, have since moved into urban studies, urban history. And I'm curious what brought you to this topic in particular. You and I were, were chatting a little bit before we started recording about how I never encountered a book uh, that used an airport as a way of getting at a larger urban history. So what drew you to the topic of SFO, uh, San Francisco's airport, as a way of understanding this history of the Bay Area? I guess what I'm asking is why an airport and why this airport specifically? Yeah, Steve, well, it's a complicated story. I mean, on some level, this is a return to some work I thought I might do when I was in graduate school. Um, I had thought at that point in time that I might actually, before I ended up doing getting into cultural and intellectual history, I thought I might do a, a, some kind of Bay Area urban history project. Um, this is a moment in the early 1990s when um, you know Mike Davis's City of Courts was influencing a lot of people, as were a lot of other urban studies across disciplines. So, you know, I had thought at some point I might do something, um, you know, on the Bay Area that sort of followed the lead of some of those other studies, but then again, went in a different direction. Um, But then, you know, about a decade or so ago, um, after doing a book with a friend and colleague, Lewis Watts, who's a photographer, about New Orleans and the cultural reconstruction of that city post Katrina, um, you know that that 
sort of study of a place that I had only recently familiarized myself uh, made me want to return to do something on the place where I was from. Um, and it was, you know, one of those one thing led to another situation. Uh, eventually it dawned on me that writing about an airport um, as a place where lots of different kinds of people and networks come together, you know, might be an interesting way to think about how networks and relationships of various kinds help define, constitute an urban area. Um, airports are also places where um, they're kind of repositories of accumulated power in a region um, in terms of the money behind them, the um, political figures, uh, business elites who, you know, sort of um, interest in developing them is reflected in these infrastructures. So, the, you know, I thought it might be an interesting place to look at asymmetrical relationships and networks. And again, the way that um, power is expressed, accumulated in a region. Um, you know, I also, after writing about a lot of um things that I was either deeply critical of or um, wanted, you know, wanted to honor on some level. It, it, um, I thought it might be an interesting challenge to write about something um, which I'm ambivalent about. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent about flying. I'm ambivalent about spending time in airports, and I thought that might be an interesting exercise. Um, and, you know, again, this in terms of the part of your question about why this airport in particular, um, again, it's part of the project of trying to make sense of this region um, where I'm from. I also have some family history that intersects with this airport. My grandfather was a skycap at SFO um, or a porter. He began working there in 1942. A skycap for people who don't um, know the term because there aren't many skycaps left at airports is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an occupation. These are people who um, typically greet passengers at the curb and, you know, carry their baggage inside the airport and you know prior to 9-11 sometimes would check people into their flights at the curb um you know it was uh, historically an african-american occupation and you know my grandfather um was um you know got a job his at that point in time his family was living in um uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, so he secured this job through word of mouth you know, at, at, at San Francisco's airport in 1942, started working there. Um, and then my grandmother and my father and my aunt joined him a year later. So that was sort of um, that event sort of inaugurated my family's participation in the um, second great migration of African Americans from the um, south to the um, to the uh, uh, in this case, the Bay Area. You know, I, I got to ask, because you said that that you're ambivalent about flying and about airports in general. Um, did writing this book and the process of, of doing kind of a deep dive and research on airports and this airport in particular, did it change the experience that you have when you visit airports now? Like when you go to SFO, do you view it in a totally different way when you're sitting there waiting to, to check in for your flight? Are you are you kind of looking at the, the world around you, the airport in any kind of new way now? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have to say I haven't been there that many times <laughs> since working on this book, or at least not in recent years, in part because of, um, you know, COVID and, you know, sort of the lack of travel in recent years. But, um, you know, I mean, there's some interesting things about FSFO in particular, uh, namely its public art and um, museum project. And the museum project is a, um, you know, since the, you know, circa 1980, they've um, had this program where they have a, um, these different installations scattered across the airport in, you know, more and more over the years, which, you know, are, I mean, these are exhibits of all kinds of different things, you know, pottery from certain, certain times and places, um, glass exhibitions, um, you know, information about certain local phenomena, um, exhibits called from different museums in the region. And it, it's really quite impressive. And actually, SFL has won all of these different, um, as a, won some awards, at least, for its, again, public art and museum programs. So, um, 
when I happen to spend time there, I have, um, you know, appreciate those exhibitions more. Um, And, you know, it's just interesting, you know, now that I know a little bit more about how airports function and the kind of work that people do there um, to see those dynamics in practice. So I'd say, yes, more of an appreciation, although, um, again, I haven't spent, um, you know, really that much more time there in recent years. Um, although I did do research there. I mean, it's associated with the, um, um, the museum is an archive. So I was actually able to, you know, go to the international terminal um, on quite a number of days and um, sort of go backstage and, um, and, and work in the airport's archives. So I don't usually ask questions about historiography of my guests, but as I said a second ago, just for me, this was such a new and interesting topic. I I couldn't help but be curious. I got to ask, how much have historians and other scholars written about airports before? What kind of literature were you drawing from for this book, or was this sort of a new intervention in some ways? Um. I mean, I think this is a particular intervention in terms of the types of stories I tell here about a region through the lens of the airport. Um, But there is actually quite a bit of writing about airport um, and flight. there are a number of, you know, sort of outside of academia, there are quite a few local and regional historians who've written about different airports, you know, across the, the nation and the, and the world. Um, for example, the former assistant director of SFO Museum, John Hill, has a book um, on SFO, you know, text and photographs that sort of came out on the occasion of the opening of the SFO's um, <clears throat> excuse me, new international terminal um, circa, circa 2000. Um, there's also a historiography by academic urban historians that often links airports to histories of um, urban transportation and city and regional development. And, you know, some of this work surveys airports across the nation and, um, you know, seeks to sort of think about things that, you know, uh, you, you know t- it talks about things in broad strokes, um, you know, just about the phenomena of airports, the phenomena of um, phenomenon of airports in general. Um, you know, there are also, you know, a handful of studies that I know about that focus on individual airports. Um, for example, there's an urban historian named Nicholas Bloom, who has a, a you know, a really interesting book um, on JFK called Metropolitan Airport that sort of links the development um, or the, you know, create or or the renaming of JFK and its development to, you know, a a number of questions around New York City's urban development and sort of urban politics. Um, But, you know, beyond that work by historians, there's, you know, quite an interesting range of um, literature from historians across disciplines who've been, you know, talking about airports vis-a-vis immigration policy or security issues, um, jet noise. Um, There's a really interesting book by uh, Marina Peterson, who's an anthropologist um, called Atmospheric Noise on anti-jet noise protests um, and the phenomenon of jet noise around Los Angeles International Airport, LAX. so, you know, there's, again, lots of different kinds of scholarship, some of which is, is, is written by historians. I myself, uh, I've never flown into SFO, or I, I might have flown in once when I was like a, a child. I was trying to remember. I think I I've maybe went once when I was a little, little kid. But for all intents and purposes, I have not been there myself. And you actually, you, you start the book with a description of uh, uh, flying in to SFO. Can you describe what it's like to approach the city and the airport from the air and kind of the experience of visiting the airport today? Maybe we should start in the present before jumping back to the history of this of this facility. Sure. Um well, I mean, it's interesting to think about flying into the airport because you're right. I do start the um, book with this um, description of flying into SFO at night and seeing, you know, these different configurations of light, you know, outlining 
um, helping one identify different cities and different parts of the infrastructure, you know, the lights that define, well, well airports, for example, other, you know, SFO and other airports in the region or bridges or, you know, you can, they, you know, sort of show where the refineries are in proximity to the urban areas. So, you know, it's, one can, um, you know, be presented with an interesting mapping of a region, um, of, of the Bay Area in particular. Um, and it's certainly one experience at night. It's a different experience um, during the daytime where, um, you yeah, know, you see this actually, you know, very interesting, beautiful area. Um, you, know, you fly over hills, you fly over water, the Bay, um, depending on which, you know, what direction you're coming in and what the, um, what your approach is, um, you know, you may end up over the Bay, you may end up we almost always end up at the, over the bay at some point. Um, you may end up over the Pacific Ocean at some point in time with some pretty spectacular views. Um, at least if you're sitting by a window. If you're not, then you know the views are, are less um, spectacular. And it can be. A, I mean, it's sort of at once disorienting as you're trying to figure out what precisely you're looking at and how you're situated in the air vis-a-vis the region below. Um, but then sometimes it can also help you understand how certain parts of the region um, region fit together. And then, you know, in terms of the airport itself, um, I mean, you know, in some ways it's like other airports and certainly lots of commentators have talked about the fact there's a kind of homogeneity of airport experiences because we tend to, you know, um, undertake the same rituals no matter where we are and you know the aesthetics of airports can be very similar but you know one of the things i try to argue in different different moments in the book is that they're similar but with a difference and um you know there's a way that the sfo's airport signals to you that it's that you're you know um you know you're, if you're arriving there at least you know look um entering an area, you know, that's sort of known for its multiculturalism, that's known for its, you know, histories of political activism and so forth, then, you know, that gets um, apparently represented in public art and design features and some of these um, exib- cultural exhibitions um, installed by the, um, by the SFO Museum. So why don't we start getting into the history of this place? And indeed, why don't we start with the place itself? Can you tell us a bit about the land on which SFO sit? What existed before there was an airport here? Why this site in particular for an airport? Yeah, so where San Francisco International Airport sits now, I mean, some of where it sits used to be not, well, in the um, earlier in the 20th century, early in the 20th century, at least, used to be open water. Um, But the part of the airport that was originally built in the late 1920s was built on reclaimed salt marsh that was uh, uh, reclaimed by a um, wealthy California banker named Darius Ogden Mills, uh, who was one of the principals of the Bank of California. Um, and you know, made a fortune in part fi- from financing um, gold mining in the Sierras, um, silver mining in the Comstock, and um, and, and also financed and you know profited from a variety of other um, extractive ventures and other kinds of um, business ventures that um, helped accumulate wealth in the San Francisco Bay Area and made you know at least a handful of people like himself you know tremendously rich. So it was his family, his descendants that first. Um, rented and then sold that land, um, which I guess Mills had originally um, reclaimed to graze his dairy cows. He was a kind of gentleman farmer as well as, as, well as a wealthy banker. Um, he had originally um, reclaimed the land to, to, to uh, graze his dairy cows. And um, it, you know, it still may have been used um, for um, dairying um, when it was um, you know, given to the um, well again first rented and then sold to the uh, to the city of San Francisco in the, in the late 1920s. So what I do in the book is try to tell the story uh, of, of that land as a way of um, thinking about um, the complicated 
asymmetrical relationships that had helped to make this region. Um, since that's you know part of the story I try to tell through the region during its existence, I start in the first chapter by talking about some of the antecedents of those relationships, um, you know, going back to um, the colonial period, essentially. So what I do is talk about how this, um, you know, this salt marsh was sort of adjacent to lands that were originally under control sort of back and forth between the, um, you know, during the Spanish period, um, between the mission in San Francisco and the San Francisco Presidio, the uh, military outpost. Um, and both of those entities used the surrounding lands to graze cattle. And then it, um, during the Mexican period, it was, you know, these lands surrounding the airport were part of a California rancho. Um, and, you know, so, you know, I, I tell that story as well. Um, and then, you know, as happened elsewhere, um, the Californios lost most of their land to, um, you know, Anglo business interests and speculators and the like um, during the U.S. period. And, you know, that's how that chunk of land fell into the hands of the Mills family. And I, you know, talk about some of the relationships that happened on or near their, this land, um, you know, and actually, you know, I should go back and say that, you know, I talk about how this land originally was um, stewarded by and used by um, Ramatush Ohlone people um, who lived in the area prior to um, the arrival of the Spaniards. And, um, you know, the adjacent lands were, um, you know, cultivated and, um, um, stewarded by, by, by the Ohlone people and these marshlands, you know, were used for ceremony and used, um, you know, people hunted, fished, fished, gathered, foraged in, in, in salt marshes as well. So, um, you know, part of the story, of course, in this colonial context is the, is violence. And part of the story are, um, involves other kinds of asymmetrical relationships that occur in this land. And I talk about how, you know, this land was transformed over the years by, you know, lots of different people, um, you know, including, well, the land and then the waters as well, um, um, you know, just offshore in the bay. Um, so transformed by people like the oyster companies who were using, um, you know, this underwater land for cultivating oysters and by um, Chinese um, fishermen who were um, fishing for shrimp in the waters just off, um, you know, this, this marshland and, you know, in waters that subsequently were filled in and um, built on, you know, as the airport itself expanded. So this might be kind of a strange question, given the world that we live in today, where airports are very much an assumed part of urban infrastructure for any city of any sizable city at all. But thinking back to the early days of uh, air travel, let alone commercial air travel in the 1920s, why build an airport at all? What does an airport represent for a city, for city elites, city uh, uh, sort of the, the people that the city leaders, right? What does it represent for these people, for the city itself in this kind of very early period of air travel? Well, I think early on, and we're talking about the 20s and early 30s, um, you know, the airports represented progress. Um, they represented innovation. Um, they represented... Um, an ability to, you know, kind of triumph over nature and manipulate the land and the laws of physics or defy the laws of physics. And, um, you know, you know, in that sense, symbolize human ingenuity and a capacity for expansion and progress. Um, you know, in the Bay Area, um, amongst uh, and in San Francisco, in particular, among um, city elites and business elites, uh, you know, there was early on a recognition that um, air travel, as it developed, might open up doors for a kind of soft imperialism and, you know, in the Pacific world um, and facilitate increasing trade and influence in Asia and elsewhere um, around the Pacific Rim. Um, I mean, it was sort of unclear exactly how that might happen because, you know, early on planes didn't, you know, planes were small and couldn't go very far. And, um, 
And, you know, a lot of the focus was on just airmail transportation, but, you know, eventually um, people, you know, became more and more invested in the idea that, you know, um, um, you know, airplanes could transport pe people and goods to and from overseas destinations. And again, sort of, you know, lead to a, um, and support, um, you know, in this case, a region's uh, imperial destiny and, you know, the, the development of um, uh, wealth in the region. Um, another part of the story is that there's, you know, as, you know, early on in the air, early in the airport's history, there's a, there's a lot of competition between San Francisco, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, um, the Seattle, um, Seattle, in terms of which of these urban areas is going to be most in influential and best reap the rewards of economic expansion in the West and, you know, in, into the Pacific Rim. So, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of competition between these regions and um, a fair amount of anxiety among leaders in these regions as to who will win this struggle. And um, uh, people see, you know, and some of this is focused on um, shipping and um, those folks who are supporting the early development of aviation see, um, see, see that sphere as a way to, um, you know, have an increasing influence in terms of trade and, um, you know, again, Pacific Rim trade, you know, in, in relation to these other, in, to, in relation to these other cities. And almost immediately, uh, SFO, uh, begins to have an impact. So when is the airport uh, officially opened and how does the airport immediately begin to change the city and the region in the years after its construction? Yeah, so the airport first opens officially in 1927 as Mills Field, you know, named after the, um, you know, the family who, um, you know, bequeathed the land to the city. It it takes a while for it to really have a profound impact um, because, you know, there's, a, there's uncertainty. Uh, I mean, you know, some faith that aviation will, um, you know, take off, so to speak, no pun intended. Um, but it, it, it takes a while for that to do so. And it, SFO has, you know, kind of a checkered early history. The facility isn't great. You know, there's a problem with... Um, the airfield, which said, you know, in those days initially was dirt, um, you know, with, um, you know, the, the, like during the rainy season, um, the, the airport being, um, you know, very, the, the airfield being very muddy, um, the weather isn't great. There's, um, competition with, um, what becomes Oakland airport across the bay. There's, uh, you know, actually early on, as the San Francisco's airport ends up losing some of its business to Oakland um, because airlines and you know their pilots see it as a better facility, easier to fly in and out of, etc. Um, so it takes a while, but eventually, um, well, a couple of things happen. You know, the technology changes, um, airplanes become bigger, faster, have longer range, um, air. Um, Passenger travel becomes more viable as a part of the business. Um, the airlines aren't as dependent on airmail transportation um, in order to succeed financially. And then there is a lot of there. There are a lot of resources put into the development, construction, and expansion of airports um, during the 1930s and into the 1940s in the context of um, the New Deal. Um, the WPA, the PWA, Public Works Administration, um, put a lot of money into airports, both as a way of you know, improving the economy during the um, depression, putting people to work. Um, but there's also, a, um, you know, there's also a sense within the federal government that, um, you know, airport construction should be subsidized more generally for the, you know, for the longer term good of the economy. And in part because it, it sort of helps with um, civilian defense, because there's a sense that the military will be able to use these facilities as well. So, you know, I think once that starts to happen across the 1930s, um, and especially, especially when the, um, the economy starts to um, recover more significantly at the end of the decade, and then of course in the 1940s, you you know, the airport becomes a more um, 
you know, tangible engine of economic growth in the region. You know, again, as um, air transportation, both pass, as, you know, passenger transportation and air cargo um, increase and become, um, again, more profitable businesses. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. And after World War II, air travel begins to grow uh, increasingly accessible to non-elites. Air travel becomes more common and, 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 and yeah, more, more accessible. How does this change SFO? Can you explain the, for instance, expansion of the airport in this era and what it tells us about the changing nature of air travel itself and of the Bay Area as well? Yeah, so the airport expands pretty dramatically first during World War II, um, like other facilities, and that's in part because both the Army and the Navy are putting a lot of money into expanding the airport. Um, and they're using the facility um, for military purposes, even as it's still being used as a civilian facility. Um, and that continues in the post-war period. There is, um, you know, the U.S. government is putting federal money behind airport expansion, which it sees as, um, you know, sees the development of air travel, um, air cargo, nationally and internationally as um, important to the development of the, you know, again, national economy and also um, the expansion of um, economic interests abroad as well. Um, and, you know, again, that coincides with and helps to um, promote more access to air travel among, um, you know, working class and middle class people. Um, you know, and as the economy expands and wages increase, you know, um, people have, you know, a growing array of people have access to um, to air travel and can afford it. And, um, you know, airline, airlines, which were primarily um, catering to a very elite group of people start to, um, you know, you know, basically, I think this is when you see the development of um, something that we know or used to know of, at least as coach, right? Um, and you have these different classes of air, air, air travel where you still have this, you know, this more um, comfortable um, experience catering to elites, but then you have, you um, um, you know, a uh, you know another experience um, catering to non-elite people, and um, this is promoted locally by um, the city of San Francisco. It's um, you know through, it's um, you know passes a series of bond measures that you know support you know just you know different waves of expansion at the airport um you know it's seen um you know based on the um idea that this is um beneficial to the uh, uh, local economy beneficial to working people um and you know that you see you see that developing as well um although of course this develops in ways that are unequal um, because again not everyone has access to these airport jobs that are um, you know one of the things that are promoted as beneficial to the community as um, you know that go along with the airport expand you know the expansion of the airport um, you know one of the things that this city uses to justify the um, you know its appeal to voters to pass these bond measures um, the airport is um, you know practically you know, the, the airlines and other entities doing business at the airport, um, you know, they engage in, you know, systematic, dis systematically discriminatory employment 
um, practices, you know, through um, through the 1950s. Well, those kinds of practices are, are what I wanted to get into next, because in the 1960s and 1970s, SFO becomes a, a contested space, a site of protest, uh, becomes a space that represents, to some people, inequality and political neglect and power imbalances. So can you explain some of these controversies surrounding the airport in this era and maybe what some of the outcomes of these protest movements are? Sure. So the... Um... I mean, as the airport grows, it has a bigger, bigger big, and bigger impact on the region, um, both as this big, noisy infrastructure that is sort of heard and felt in its surroundings, but also creates other transformations, um, you know, in, in proximity, like, you know, increases in traffic congestion, um, you know, based on you know travelers going to and from the airport um, as well as workers going to and from the airport um, and you know it's a public infrastructure and you know there are you know different expectations by different constituencies in the regions um, about what this era, what this big infrastructure might offer them or not and you know what are you know what the costs and benefits of having this um again ever expanding infrastructure in the area so um you know one of the big questions again is you know what are the costs and benefits of this publicly subsidized infrastructure and the associated economic and other kinds of growth um you know and how you know who are who precisely are the winners and losers when it comes to, you know, what the airport has to offer. So, you know, one of the things I do in the middle of the book, I have, um, you know, some chapters that, you know, are all focused around different kinds of protests that happen in or in relation to the airport. Um, one of them is, um, you know, going back to what I was talking about earlier, is a, um, <clears throat> one of the chapters looks at black, anti-discrimination struggles at the airport from the 1950s, late 1950s into the 1980s. And, you know, like other airports, a lot of other airports across the country, um, you know, SFO just didn't hire, or hired very few black workers um, prior to the civil rights movement, um, you know, um, ramping up in the, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and most people who, most black workers who were hired were doing um, basically service work. And, you know, a lot of it was low paid service work, like janitorial work or, um, you know, having lower wage jobs in food service. Um, although skycaps were, you know, that was a service occupation that, that actually paid, paid pretty well. But, um, you know, what I trace, you know, I mean, there was a... For a while, you know, in part because of discriminatory practices at the airport and also because activists tended to be focusing their efforts elsewhere, there seemed to be more opportunities. Local act activists weren't really paying much attention to the airport. But eventually, you know, again, as airport employment expanded and also in the wake of some um, visible anti-discrimination struggles focused on airlines um, and on airports elsewhere in the United States, particularly, um, you know, probably most notably focusing on flight attendants' efforts to um, get access to, or black women's access to, black women's efforts to get access to flight attendant jobs, um, primarily in the Midwest and the East Coast, um, local activists started to ramp up their efforts to get um, black people jobs at SFO. And so what, what I trace are a number of different struggles by civil rights organizations, church organizations to get access to jobs. Um, there, you know, there are also efforts by the city of San Francisco and its human um, um, human rights council to um, institute affirmative action programs at the airport to try to open up um, airport work in part because of pressure, this pressure from civil rights organizations. Um, I talk also about 
efforts to improve the kinds of jobs that black workers could get at the airports, you know, in the face of union discrimination and its discrimination by, um, by the airlines. And, you know, that involves organizing at different levels. It involves, you know, some, <clears throat> excuse me, black workers, you know, working within their unions. It involves um, other black workers, black workers, um, and sometimes some of the same black workers organizing outside of their unions through um, black employee organizations that cut across occupation to try to um, work sort of differently with the air, airlines to improve their status as workers and again, gain access to um, other kinds of jobs. And that and sometimes involves putting direct pressure on airlines to institute affirmative action programs. Um, there's also, there are also efforts by um, black contractors and other um, business people to get access to, um, to establish concessions at the airport and get access to contracts, construction con contracts for airport, um, airport, um, um, uh, construction contracts for airport expansion. So it's a really complicated story. And one of the things I try to, 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 you know, suss out and describe here, you know, going back to what I said earlier about airports being really fascinating places where lots of different people and networks come together is just how complicated the um, terrain of activism is and how many different kinds of um, um, groups and people are involved to try to, um, you know, make employment conditions or um, business conditions better, better um, for black people. And, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the question about outcomes, the, um, I mean, the outcome is that there were some successes, but there were also pretty significant limits. And uh, the black workers were able to, you know, make significant gains in certain occupations but not so much in the professional ranks and the in terms of on the business side of things um you know there was a moment when you know the representation of black business people in airport contracts and concessions looks more or less like um what you might expect in the broader um, Bay Area population. But, you know, once some of the affirmative action programs were cut back in the wake of the Baki decision and the like, um, you know, some of those gains were lost. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the chapter is that, um, you know, what Black workers and business people were able to achieve was a kind of patchy inclusion in terms of participation in this infrastructure um, that, you know, never quite succeeded. And, you know, in some, to some degree in later years, um, you know, that, that foothold actually diminished, um, which, you know, had some, had some parallels in terms of the broader story of um, the Black presence in the um, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, Another thing, that, another chapter, you know, from this part of the book that I, um, um, that involves protest has to do with anti-jet anti noise protests in the area. And I, I, I talk about the ways that the, um, there's a really interesting story of how, you know, suburban quality of life politics, um, which, you know, sort of was, Define kind of early anti-jet noise um, protests in the late 1950s and early 1960s um, began to coincide more and more with um, a burgeoning environmentalism in the um, um, in, in the region, and it was. Um, you know, so again, there's a long history of anti-jet noise politics. Um, the result of which is that there were some successes um, in terms of um, putting pressure on the airport to make some changes in flight operations and to assist communities in terms of developing programs that include things like um, 
you know, providing grants for people to insulate their homes to make them a little more soundproof. Um, and that, along with changes in technology, you know, led to some big decrease in noise around the airport. But it's um, it's a complicated story. Um, you know, people are still um, complaining about jet noise, you know, decades and decades later. And, you know, it's often different communities get drawn into this um economy of noise and protest in, in um, you know, after there are changes to flight operations for different kinds of reasons and, you know, um, approaches to the airport, um, the flight paths are changed or um, altered somewhat and that, you know, can make things noisier, less noisy for one group that had been experiencing noise and, 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 and uh, noisier for another group. So I think that's another, and- another interesting part of this story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this story of, of SFO being this kind of hub of activism and a symbol for, you know, uh, power dynamics and inequality, this doesn't end with the 20th century either. This is an ongoing story well into the 21st century, too. And in the book, you talk about the airport becoming a hub of uh, immigration-related activism in the early 21st century. Can you talk a little bit about that? And kind of similar to the last question, I'm curious, what were the outcomes and maybe also the limits of that particular version of activism at the airport? Yeah, so there are a couple things notable in the 21st century. I mean, I talked about some some immigration-related protests that happened earlier as well, um, but certainly a couple of notable protests that happen sort of at the airport and then have resonance, you know, in activist communities, um, you know, across the Bay Area. I mean, one are the protests on behalf of, by and on behalf of um, non-citizen security workers at the airport, many of whom were Filipino. Um, After 9-11, the um, Aviation Transportation Security Act that was passed, you know, which, you know, among other things, establishes the um, um, Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, that um, imposes a citizenship requirement on um, airport security workers, um, which jeopardizes a um, the jobs of a lot of, um, again, in particular, Filipino workers, um, you know, who are on, you know, who had green cards or were on work visas who did security work at the airport. So, you know, a lot of activism on their behalf to try to um, get them, you know, let them keep their jobs. There was a, um, you know, they were able to kind of delay the um, impact of the um, the um, the Security Act um, so that it, it didn't take place at SFO for, um, until a little later than it did at some other airports. Um, but eventually, the non-citizen workers um, lost their jobs. Um, another thing I talk about. Um, briefly, and this is something you know that was in the news just several years ago, is after you know Trump, President Trump's so-called Muslim ban, there were um, you know significant protests at SFO as there were at other airports across the nation. You know, um, you know, um, protesting the um, um, you know the attempt to um, you know prevent um, people from um, different countries from, um, you know, entering the United States, um, you know, primarily Muslim countries from um, traveling to um, entering or immigrating, um, immigrating into the United States. So, um, you know, one of the things I talk about in this chapter um, is that in these struggles, sometimes to present, present, you know, protect the rights of um, people to, in one case, hold jobs, in the other um, case, to um, enter, uh, return to the country. Um, there's often this rhetoric of deservingness um, that gets mobilized to support their cause. You know, for example, you know, uh, when it comes to the non-citizen workers, um, you know, this, there's this sort of rhetoric around their patriotism, their commitment to the nation. Um, uh, when it comes to the um, Trump's Muslim ban, you know, often, you know, what you heard some activists at least say, not all, but some activists say is, you know, they really focused on the deservingness of certain people who would be 
affected by the ban. Like, you know, well, look, these folks are students at Stanford and Berkeley, or these folks are, um, you know, they're working in the tech industry um, and are contributing to the local economy that way. And sometimes when that rhetoric was mobilized, it, um, you know, it, it focused on the deservingness of some people and kind of assume the undeservingness of other people as well. Um, you know, for example, like some of this rhetoric um, supporting the patriotism um, of Filipino security workers um, sort of assumed as okay the targeting of um, Muslim travelers as potential terrorists, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis that security apparatus or that um, rhetoric which, um, you know, tended to champion the causes of, you know, students at elite institutions, elite universities or uh, workers in the tech economy, you know, didn't really have much to say at all about lower wage workers, say. So I, you know, I talk a little bit about the uh, limit, the, the sort of rhetorical limits of and the political limits of, of, of those mobilizations. Um, although that didn't, of course, define all the people who are involved in these struggles, um, because other people were, you know, for example, there were activists who were, um, you know, finding common cause between um, Filipino workers who were seen as, you know, not sufficiently American, um, you know, as people from outside the U.S., as a racialized population, finding common cause and similarities between their experiences and Muslim Americans who were, you know, again, targeted by the security apparatus. So as we begin to wrap up here, um, I'm wondering if we can maybe look to the, 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 the present and maybe the future a little bit. And I'm wondering what you think SFO, what this, this airport, this, this institution, what do you think it tells us about the contemporary Bay Area? And then looking forward a bit, what is the future of this airport? I mean, I don't think anyone will predict that the airport is not is going to shut down anytime soon or anything so dramatic. But how do you see it changing? And with those changes, how is the Bay Area going to change? So in terms of how it represents, how it reflects the Bay Area, I mean, I think it's interesting. And I think the story is um, contradictory. I mean, I, on one level, I mean, again, going back to the art and design elements and the, um, the cultural exhibitions, I mean, there's a way that this airport, in, you know, aesthetically, in terms of who works there, reflects the multiculturalism of the region. Um, I, I think a lot of the artworks reflects, speaks to the progressive politics that define the region. Um, I mean, even some of the politics of the airport, I mean, even some of the operations of the airport itself um, reflect some of the progressive dynamics in the Bay Area. Um, you know, there over the last couple of decades, there's been a, um, a kind of living wage program established in at the airport, which um, kind of imposes, you know, by the city, by the airport, that sort of imposes a living wage requirement on airlines and other entities that do business there that's sort of tied to living wage efforts in the Bay Area and San Francisco um, more generally. Um, the airport has, you know, as far as airports go, has engaged in a pretty... Um, um, impressive array of sustainability programs that, um, you know, I think also reflect the, um, you know, the Bay, you know, the, the sort of impact of environmentalists in the Bay Area and, and their ability to shape the operations of um, a number of kinds of um, civic institutions, infrastructures, and, um, and, and businesses. Um, all that said, I mean, the airport still reflects the profound and growing inequalities um, that define the region. Um, I mean, you can see that, you know, the, these sort of racialized class dynamics are apparent at SFO, like most airports in terms of 
who does what kind of work there um, and what kinds of occupations people have, um, um, you, know, you know, either with whether working for the airlines or working for some of the concessions, and um, you know, also reflected, I guess, maybe in an indirect way in terms of just the hierarchies that define air travel in terms of, um, you know who gets access first to airplanes, who sets, sits where on airplanes, you know, who has access to certain kinds of lounges and the like. Um, and, you know, again, this is, um, you know, this region like others is, you know, undergoing, um, you know, uh, we witness, I mean, not like, not like these asymmetries didn't occur before, but this is this kind of, um, you know, contemporary exacerbation of, um, you know, um, differences and, you know, sort of resegregation of the area. So I, I, I can see um, that the airport is a kind of macrocosm of that. Um, you know, in terms of the future of the airport, I mean, again, yeah, like, like you said, it's a little hard to predict. I think one of the, you know, getting back to these sustainability and um, programs, I mean, and some of the other things, the sustainability programs, which are related to some of the things, I mean, one aspect of that are the things that the airport is trying to do to, to the extent it can ameliorate climate change and, um, you know, it's doing some interesting things in terms of energy conservation and trying to put support um, behind this project to develop alternative kinds of jet fuel. Um, tied to that is the reality that sea level rise uh, could have a pretty profound effect going forward um, on airport operations. Um, I mean, not only, I mean, this is an airport built right next to the bay and you know so it is uh, and, and you know the runways aren't very high above the bay water at high tide at the present and um, in addition to that the airport is sinking um, in part because it was built on um, landfill and you know just the, the the enormous weight of the runways and the um, concrete and steel infrastructure is causing um, as scientists have recently discovered the um, airport to sink at a fairly alarming rate. So one of the things the airport is doing is trying to, um, it's in the process right now of developing plans to build a seawall that would um, potentially at least protect the airport from some of the sea level rise that could happen if projections are correct by about 2100. Um, you know, whether that will be successful or not is a, well, it's dependent on one on, um, you know, what level of sea rise, sea level rise actually happens and whether these um, site-specific um, remediation projects, um, you know, protection projects can actually be successful when you, you know, when sea level rise is a systematic kind of, um, of phenomenon. So, yeah, we'll see. I guess one of the things, I mean, you know, back to your question, you know, it, it may not have much in the future if these aren't successful. Um, but it's, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that story plays out in terms of, um, you know, this bigger story of how climate change will affect a region, again, built, you know, around these bodies of water. And, you know, to what extent will trying to ameliorate that, you know, what communities will that take into, you know, who, who will be protected, what communities' interests will be taken into account, um, you know, to what extent will that project be, um, you know, will it be democratic, will it, you know, protect interests of low-income people as well as, um, you know, elite interests. And, you know, it's, I mean, as one can imagine, you know, it's um, there's certainly um, lots of factors lining up that would um, seem to indicate that it will be the interests of the powerful, um, the interests of those um, institutions, infrastructures that um, uh, serve power, serve elite interests that will be protected first. Um, but again, you know, the, 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 that story is still unfolding. 
And then finally, at the end of, of my conversations, I always like to ask my guests to uh, imagine themselves, well, imagine their book through the eyes of, of one of their readers, of someone reading this book, and then remembering the book, maybe a year down the line, maybe a couple years down the line. What do you hope that this reader would remember or would take away from this book, thinking back on it from a few years later on? Well, I'd hope they would take away that there are lots of interesting stories that, you know, compose a region and its development over time, um, and that they'd be drawn to some of the ones that are in this book, you know, again, regarding the anti-discrimination struggles that happen at the airport or, you know, the anti-jet noise struggles. Um, I hope people would think that telling the story of a particular piece of land can be interesting, um, but I think, you know, maybe a bigger um takeaway that I hope people would um, get from this is that airports are really fascinating, strange places that um, they're not all the same. They actually do in really interesting ways serve as um, touchstones for a region and they in a sense are archives for a regional, uh, for a region's history. Um, I mean, that can be read sort of alongside other kinds of archives to tell, again, you know, interesting stories of encounter and um, network power and the like in, in a particular region. I mean, this one that I wrote about, but other, other regions, of course, as well. Uh, I know that I'm I'm flying next week, and I know I'm going to be looking at the two airports that I'm going to be traveling through with very new eyes after after reading this book. So thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. I hope they are interesting. That ends up being an interesting experience for you. Well, that's the thing is that you know it's two airports I've flown through a lot, and in the past they never have been, but now I think they will. So in that way, I think this book was pretty successful. <laughs> <laughs> Great, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. Dr. Eric Porter is a professor of history at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and his new book is A People's History of, of SFO, The Making of the Bay Area and an Airport, which came out with the University of California Press earlier this year in 2023. Thank you so much once again for joining me today, Eric. You're welcome. It was a real pleasure. 